You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Well, welcome, folks. I'm going to start. Um, before we before we begin the proceedings, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. And it's a upon their ancestral land that the University of Sydney is built. And uh, as we embark on this small but very high-powered workshop tomorrow and tonight, um, I think it, it, we should ponder, as we will be, the deep time and shallow time of our oceans. And uh, it behoves us to remember the different legacies that we represent with regard to the oceans in comparison with the Eora nation. For theirs, legacy is of working with and in harmony, uh, not in any way damaging or hurting the oceans for the deep time of 65,000 years. Our legacy is the shallow time of the Anthropocene, perhaps less than 200 years, in which we've managed to seriously foul um, and imperil the oceans. When we ponder the legacy of the Aura Nation, I think um, we should think uh, in great humility of our, of our legacies in comparison with theirs. Having done that, I'd like to welcome you to this Sydney Ideas Stories and Seaways, which is a, a prelude, a kind of prologue to the workshop that we have tomorrow. It's a joint uh, workshop with the University of Edinburgh and David Farrier there is, is hitting himself and trying to make sure that he's, he's awake, um, having just flown in from Edinburgh uh, last night. Both David uh, and, our first, and our first speaker, Alice Tapunga Somerville, together, I'll do the introductions first. So let me begin with Alice Tapunga Somerville. Uh, she uh, she is uh, from the truly uh, truly famous iwi in New Zealand of Te Atiawa from Mount Taranaki, and she's an associate professor at the, the Faculty of Maori and Indigenous Studies at the University of Waikato, and her research and teaching there works more or less at the intersection of English literature, culture, uh, indigenous studies, and, and also Pacific studies. And the people here kind of represent that, that range of, of interests and, and expertise. She's taught uh, her indigenous studies and English work with respect to Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, and Canada all kind of countries that Trump's not keen on. Um, and her previous book was called um, Once Were Pacific. Once Were Pacific, a kind of play on the, um, on the great film from New Zealand. Maori Connections to Oceania in 2012. She's currently working on a new book with many strands um, called Writing the New World, Indigenous Texts, 1900 to 1975. David Farrier is from the University of Edinburgh, um, where he is the convener of the Environmental Humanities Network there. We came to know him last year when he came to Australia 
uh, under a Leverhulme fellowship with a rival university, but nevertheless we were tolerant and took him into our bosom. Um, and uh, at that time David was working on a book uh, called Anthropocene Poetics, Deep Time, Sacrifice Zones and Extinction. The book will be published next year uh, by the University of Minnesota Press. But he's also a man of many parts because he's producing another book next year. This time it's a trade book, um, which has already won a prize from the Society, uh, uh, the Society of Literature um, in, in London. And it was in, I think, 2017, right? 2017. Um, this book is about, will also appear next year. It's, it's called Footprints in Search of Future Fossils. And it will be published by uh, Farah Strauss and Giroux, a wonderful press. Now, without further ado, I'd like to invite Alice to come and speak to us. Um, um, and I also turn my mind to the people whose country I was on for a couple of years just recently, Darug, just over the over the ways a little, um, as I also acknowledge the kind of broader um, indigenous communities in the Sydney region. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the Kaiwaka Aire, the, um, the people who have brought us together um, today, um, Ian and the Sydney Environment Institute. Um, uh, the Australian Museum has also um, helped me find my way over here this week. Um, and it's lovely to meet you, David. Um, I'm sure you meet many people with white ancestry in the Antipodes who say, I have Scottish ancestry too. But I'm sure with the last name, half of my last name is Somerville, so you probably figured that one out anyway, but it's always nice to have that little uh, tracing of the genealogies in all different directions. So thanks for keeping things warm over in my other homeland. We haven't lived there since the early 1800s, but I'm sure you're doing a good job of looking after it for us. <laughs> Um, I'd also like to really thank the Ringawera, which is um, in our language, the people with warm hands, the people who have been looking after us, have brought us together, um, have done the very practical things. Um, Eloise and others have taken care of us beautifully. We feel really um, comfortable. Um, I'm travelling as a pack at the moment of three of us. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Vula, my husband, would hate for me to thank him publicly, but because he's out of the room, I will. Um, it's because of him being able to come and uh, support me in this way that I'm able to travel and uh, continue to do this kind of work, even as a mum of a 10-month-old. Um, speaking of which, I hope that Titelia doesn't put you all off if she's making noise. Um, I kind of tune her out, and I hope and encourage you to attempt to do the same. Um, and it's also really nice to be back home in Sydney, a place that... Um, uh, we really love, um, and it's really lovely to see friends and colleagues here um, today. So thank you for the invitation to speak and for the opportunity to contribute some thoughts to this evening's panel, and I'm also really looking forward to the symposium tomorrow. 
I've been thinking and writing a lot about oceans for a while, but things have ramped up again for me oceanically recently. As well as various writing and research projects of my own, at the University of Waikato this year, we launched a new major, Pacific and Indigenous Studies, or PASIS for short, and I've just, about a week and a half ago, finished teaching the inaugural version of the first level PASIS paper, or unit, for you Aussies. Um, and so once again, um, I've been kind of brought back into going, how do we think about, and in this case, how do we teach a whole region? How do, how do you teach an ocean? As I've been talking about with my students, the problem with talking about oceans is things can get really vague and generalised really fast. And the problem with being an Indigenous scholar, talking about one's own people, is that things can turn into reliable native informant mode really fast too. So this evening I've decided to turn to a poem, What the Destination Has to Offer, written by another Māori poet, Hinemwana Baker, with whom I share some tribal affiliations and who's currently based in Germany. Some of you, I hope not too many of you, think that listening to someone talking for 20 minutes about one poem sounds about as thrilling as a trip to the dentist. And let's face it, you could be home right now watching Home and Away, but I'm going to press on and hopefully you'll agree with me that Baker's poem opens up some significant questions and concepts related to the conceptualisation of sea and how we and people, other people, but not only people, move through the ocean. And I'll just note here that Hinemwana Baker's own name connects to the topic of our discussion today because Hinemwana is the atua wahine, or the female god, who's embodied in the form of the ocean. So we have a poet called Hinemwana, named after the embodiment uh, of the ocean itself. I'm going to read the poem first, and then we can get busy talking and thinking about it together, because I find it really hard to like go, wait, what, what bit are you talking about now if you actually haven't heard the poem? Um, so... I confess, it might not be easy to read, so I hope you brought your opera glasses with you. Um, but I just wanted to kind of give you a copy so you could kind of follow through. What the destination has to offer. Like trees, there are rings in the small head bones of an eel. We count the rings to find the age. Each bone too small for tweezers, my cousin plucks one up, stuck to a bead of silicon on the end of a wire. He's putting his bones under the microscope. He can tell you what they've been eating. They go to Samoa to breed, he tells me. Probably Samoa, or somewhere with water so deep it crushes the sperm and eggs from their bodies. They die then, and the tiny glass eels make their way from Samoa back to the same river in the Horofenua. Salt, fresh salt, he says. The opposite of salmon. I threw out the clock, the rubbish is ticking. On television, people are making alarming discoveries about the secret online lives of their loved ones, the daughter and the cyanide, the no reason. Our dishes smell of fly spray. I wash them while the flies circle, the same flies that have flown the rooms of this house in formation for weeks, two zizzing pairs. Or perhaps they're different flies every day, replenishing themselves away from my gaze. Middle-aged state servants in a timeshare, bored with what the destination has to offer, the hydra slide, the boardwalk, through the mangroves, bitching at each other, they can't settle, they should have gone to Samoa <laughs> instead. If we start almost halfway through her poem, we find the words that I used as a title for my talk today, salt, fresh salt. Baker recalls her cousin's comments about the life cycle of eels, salt, fresh, salt, 
the opposite of salmon. The cousin says this after outlining the process of how eels in their local river, in the Orofenua, reproduce. They move across the great expanse of the Pacific Ocean. They go to Samoa to breed, he tells me, probably Samoa. The contrast he makes with salmon, of course, is because salmon migrate from ocean water into fresh water to breed. Salt, fresh, salt, then, refers to the origins of these tiny glass eels in the salt water of the tropical Pacific that migrate to the fresh water of the islands of New Zealand. But this is not a national story for Baker. She specifically refers to a river in the Horofenua, a place she's from genealogically. And then, of course, salt again, the departure of the eels from Aotearoa to travel across the ocean to reproduce in their tropical homeland, never themselves to return. This slippery route, salt, fresh, salt, is framed here as a Pacific cycle, and it echoes a Māori understanding of ancestral arrival to Aotearoa from the ocean to which one again returns upon death. Our Pacific ancestors navigated their way down to our large, southern, not very tropical islands many generations ago, and we recall the significance of our watery origins by including our ancestral waka or ocean-going canoe and our navigators and our pepea, our formulaic recitation of specific points of individual and collective identity. Prior to our widespread conversion to Christianity in the 19th century, the dominant explanation of what happened to us upon our passing is that our spiritual selves then returned to those tropical islands from which we originally came, journeying overland to the furthest north of our island chain and from there back over and into oceanic water. Salt, fresh, salt. Another Māori poet, Robert Sullivan, writes about this final plunge back into the region in his poem, Ocean Birth, that celebrates and encourages Pacific connections. The poem opens, with the leaping spirits we threw our voices past three kings to see, eyes wide open with ancestors. Three kings refers here, as well as to the uh, biblical ones, obviously, so he's making a point about pushing beyond these kind of Christian accounts that have, have kind of overshadowed some of our own. Three Kings refers to a small cluster of islands just north of the northernmost top of New Zealand's North Island. Sullivan describes his voice accompanying the leaping spirits, referring to the departure of those Māori who passed away, who are leaping beyond our chain of southern islands to sea. And the third line, eyes wide open with ancestors, I think turns that sea at the end of that second line into a pun, to sea throwing their voices into the water enables them to see eyes wide open with ancestors. But there are other things going on with the eyes in this third line. Is it Sullivan and his we, the people he's like throwing his voice with, is it him who has his eyes wide open with ancestors? Or is it the leaping spirits who are about to return to their ancestors and who themselves are ancestors of future generations who have their eyes wide open with ancestors? Or is it the sea itself, full of the eyes of ancestors, perhaps watching as their descendants return to them? Of course, it's poetry, so it could be all three. We don't have to place a vote at all. And if it's Sullivan's eyes that are wide open with ancestors, it could be because he's motivated to join the journey north or home because of his vision of ancestors. Or his eyes could actually be specifically the eyes of his ancestors, 
which is possible when we consider that biologically as well as genealogically, we believe we're each the embodiment of our ancestors. And I'll come back to that point in a bit. And I can't help but tip my hat here to the Chickasaw literary scholar Chad Allen and note as he did in a reading of an N. Scott Momaday poem that eyes here in this third line can even be fruitfully and perhaps a little Rastafarianishly, if less obviously be read as a plural of the singular pronoun I. So maybe it's the, the kind of I and I, yeah? So we have Sullivan imagining his own return to the vast Pacific region in which the region itself, histories of people and even his own body is populated by ancestors. Upon death, you might say, Aotearoa becomes the home suspended between the oceanic home that is both our past and our future destination. And so in a broader perspective, you could think about us as Māori moving, salt, fresh, salt. There's a nice moment in Baker's poem where humans and eels gently cross over. When the cousin is working with the head bones of the eel, Baker describes he's putting his bones under the microscope. Most obviously in the context of the rest of the poem, the phrase his bones here refers to the bones of the eel that he's investigating. But literally, the poem states that he puts his bones, presumably this line, could be read as his own human bones of his own body under the microscope. It's helpful to recognise the slipperiness of the bones. Are they his bones or the eels that are going under the microscope here as a starting point? But it might be even more helpful for those of you who don't know Māori to note that bone in the Māori language is iwi. And iwi means people and also means nation or tribe. And so the slipperiness keeps going between the cousin and the eel, but also between the individual person and the collective of which he's a part. His recounting of Pacific origins and futures for the eels is also a recounting of the story of his iwi, his bones, but also his nation, his people. But what happens when we think about our return to Hawaii, our oceanic homeland, as a destination? Baker's poem is called What the Destination Has to Offer, but she kind of refuses to clarify, and so she kind of deliberately and productively confuses which end of this journey is the destination. Are we starting in salt and going afresh, or is it fresh and destination is salt, or which one is it? But for the eels and for us as Māori, we could find ourselves tracing our genealogies back from fresh to salt to fresh to salt and so on until we're in an impossible and infinite game of chicken and egg, right? It's possible to think that the starting point is the tropical homeland, right? You go, wow, this is where your people originally came from. So that's the starting point in Aotearoa, therefore must be the destination, right? There's this arrival from salt, the period of freshwater Aotearoa, and the return to salt. But every Māori child born is born not as the descendant, but the embodiment of their ancestors. And in those terms, we can see that every new generation, every new Māori individual, brings salt. Ancestors who departed Hawaii and those who have returned there since, to a new kind of arrival and fresh that will eventually turn again to salt. I've written elsewhere about how in another Pacific context, the Tongan poet Kalo Mela puzzles on the way in which she accepts the theory of being the embodiment of ancestors. It's like, oh, yep, I can follow that theory. In her poem she writes about, oh, yep, I read your books and I can, I can follow it through with my brain. But she can't feel it, right? She doesn't feel that. But when she reflects on her pregnancies, Mela finds it's more plausible to understand her embodiment of ancestors 
when she thinks about her position in a chain of inheritance between ancestors and her sons. Every limb, every bend, every bone is a recollection of who has been before, a memory of all the bodies that have been the making of me. This is not passive inheritance. The focus here is on the making of Mela. It's not just the ingredients from which she's made. To return to Sullivan, when he has his eyes wide open with ancestors, it can be that his ancestors are not just living, but looking through him. Later in her poem, Baker describes the flies that infest their house. She says, our dishes smell of fly spray. I wash them while the flies circle. While she notes the circling, cyclical nature of the motion of the flies, she admits another cycle, invisible perhaps to herself, that might also be at work. The same flies that have flown the room of this house, information for weeks, twosers and pairs, or perhaps they're different flies every day, replenishing themselves away from my gaze. It's possible that the flies she sees are the same ones. Or it's possible that they may be descendants of the original flies she saw yesterday or the day before that or the day before that. The point here is that she can't tell them apart. They could be repeating the same formation, the cycle of their ancestors, like eels, like us, and her inability to tell them apart is a less glamorous way, because who wants to identify with a fly? But it's a less glamorous way of thinking about each fly being a descendant and by extension a future ancestor a memory of all the bodies, albeit the fly bodies, that have been the making of me. And so salt, fresh salt, refers not to a one-way chain, even a chain that we like to think about in opposition to salmon. It refers instead to a loop, a cycle, in which salt and fresh are both destinations and both have something, as Hinemwana Baker puts it, to offer. But you might be thinking, if salt, fresh salt is a never-ending cycle, how can it be the opposite of salmon? How can a cycle be the opposite of something? The opposition, I think, isn't found in the nature of the cycle itself. It's found in the site where reproduction takes place. For salmon, this is the fresh water, and for eels, this is why they venture into the ocean. A Māori worldview, and perhaps a Pacific worldview, notices and understands the world in relation to cycles. This is juxtaposed not from our point of view with linearity, but with cycles that engage water and land in a different way. For us, the ocean is where genealogy comes from. And indeed, there's a quiet nudge in the poem for Māori people who forget the Pacific or salt context of who we are. And I've done some work kind of thinking about why it is that we as Māori sometimes don't think about ourselves or recall ourselves to be Pacific Ocean people. (coughs) So when the cousin puts his bones under the microscope, he finds histories that go in two directions, across space, they go to Samoa to breed, probably Samoa, and time. We count the rings to find the age. And so the poem itself starts with this idea that an eel's lifespan is recorded in the bones of the head, right? But before this, we have another comparison. These rings and the head bones are like trees. The comparison is generous to those of us who haven't spent a lot of time looking through microscopes at eel bones, um, because we can go, oh, I can picture the rings in a tree, and now I can kind of like imagine maybe what the bones of the eel look like. But it's also an interesting land-based starting point for a poem that spends most of its time thinking about water. Like trees starts us off in the place of fresh, in the Horofenua maybe, 
the here and now, the destination for the tiny eels coming from their tropical Pacific origins. Like trees, of the pantheon of Polynesian gods, each Polynesian place prioritises a different god, and in Aotearoa, the more active and important domain god is Tane, the god of forests. The starting point for this poem is not an eel, but appropriate for Aotearoa, for Māori, it's a tree, because a tree is part of the domain of our most important atua or domain god. And this starting point reminds us that those things we know about our very land-based environment in Aotearoa also does map on and connect with things related to the sea, like trees, indeed. The first time I read the poem, I'll admit, I would have been happier if it finished after the salmon content comment. I like that part of the poem. I was distracted by what felt like a jarring move away from eels in the ocean, because I was like, I love it, salt, fresh salt, there's eels, it's all very natural, it's beautiful, I'm connecting my Pacific self, it's lovely. Because after this lovely exchange, the speaker of the poem very abruptly states, I threw out the clock, the rubbish is ticking. What happened to my nice experience of reading about oceanic ancestral cycles? I wanted anyone to be like, this is another poem about the flies and other things and the clock. What does the rubbish is ticking even mean? On one level, it suggests the limitations of particular formations of time as represented by the clock, and the purging of the clock is an attempt to deliberately throw out that system of time. Although the still ticking rubbish is a reminder that the now dominant system of time doesn't cease to exist or even to have its effects, you can still hear the ticking even though it's in the rubbish, just because someone decides to try and consciously reject it. This is the difficulty of decolonizing the mind, right? You throw out the western clock and the rubbish is still ticking. As well as this, the rubbish becomes an in-between place in which the clock is still technically an earshot but it's now held separately from the rest of the home and destined for an alternate future. It's kind of like rubbish purgatory. It's not itself the destination. It marks a future destination and sits in wait for another movement to complete its journey. And yet ticking rubbish also makes me think of a ticking time bomb. And the reality is that rubbish is indeed ticking in this part of the world. The impulse to throw things away, clocks, but so many other things as well, has led to an unprecedented amount of rubbish that's having ghastly effects on the planet, including the oceans, especially the oceans, and especially our ocean. The past few decades of so-called disposable items have created the conditions for another cycle in the Pacific region, the movement of plastic debris around ocean I realised when I was preparing this that I've never heard the word gyres or gyres spoken out loud. So we'll just say gyres and we'll say that's the New Zealand received pronunciation. <laughs> if anyone tries to correct me, I'll just be like, that's how we roll in Hamilton. <laughs> Throwing out the clock is a deliberate attempt to end something. And it becomes clear that the poem about cycles and sites of expansion, they're all these expansive things. Trees, eels, salmon and flies are growing and reproducing flat out all over the poem. But the poem's actually also a little obsessed with death. First, of course, is the crushing of eels as they reproduce. They die then, and later comes cyanide and fly spray. You can't have one life without the other, death. But plastic, in particular, poses an unusual challenge to this indigenous, these indigenous concepts of cyclic inheritance. While I might see myself as the embodiment of ancestors stretching back to the original separation of Rangi and Papa, the sky and the earth, the genealogy of plastic stretches in the opposite direction. 
Every piece of plastic ever manufactured still exists and probably will forever. There's a clear, relatively recent origin point for plastic, whether we're talking about a plastic bottle, a fishing net, or Barker's disca Baker's discarded clock. And that entity will then stay with us in some horrible plasticky form as far as we can tell forever. Whereas I, in some ways, am at the end of a long line back to infinity, plastic is at the beginning of a long line forward into infinity. We depend on the individual eel's death in order to be able to put its bones and our bones, our iwi, our people under the microscope. But plastic doesn't die. What's a cycle when there's no death? The cycle and all destinations involved become clogged. The Pacific Ocean is full beyond its own capacity of plastics, including charmingly but suffocatingly invisible microplastics, let alone radioactive waste. Death is not, from the perspective of the poem, about endings, but about beginnings. The speaker of the poem wonders if the flies are different flies every day, and if they are, they're understood as replenishing themselves. Death is a form of replenishment. Ironically, the cycle, the current, the gyre, without death, is not able to be life-giving, and instead causes new forms of death. Without death, there's no replenishing, only the eerie, fatal promises of ticking rubbish. The title of the poem, What the Destination Has to Offer, is drawn from the moment later in the poem that describes two middle-aged flies or people, again the reference is slippery, this time more humorously so, who are bored with what the destination has to offer. The destination here is obviously the location of a holiday with the water-adjacent activities of a hydroslide and boardwalk, which are kind of watery but not actually watery. You're kind of sort of tipping your toe in the water or near the water but not submerging yourself in the water. But those are there for their enjoyment, but they're not really enjoying them, right? This destination is not singular, but merely one among many possible destinations. The other, which they regret not selecting, of course, is Samoa. Because there are destinations and there are destinations, like destination weddings, and theoretically every wedding's at a destination, right? But we know what we mean when we say destination weddings, yeah? Which are really about particular sites framed in certain ways through centuries of colonial representation. They're bored... These people are bored, or these flies are bored, because destinations should offer something to those who travel to them. And they, it turns out, are not satisfied with what's on offer here. After all, the title can be read as an imperative, the has to, what the destination has to offer. Yeah? It has to offer. It has to offer something. There's an expectation that there's a minimum offer required. In some ways, the timeshare is another kind of circulation. It's another destination to which people cycle back and forth, populated by different people each week, perhaps. They can't settle, observes the poem, and this echoes the inability of the eels and flies to settle too. Not being able to settle feels like a significant problem in a settler colony. It suggests a rupture in the linear claims of history that suit colonial accounts of place, a challenge to non-Indigenous assertions of connection to place that are posed by Indigenous refusals of linear and singular settlement. We like go, no, we're salt, fresh salt people. And that challenges claims of, of, of non-Indigenous settlement, which are predicated on, no, no, it's okay, we're from here too. And we're like, yeah, no, no, we're also from there. They're like, no, 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 we're talking about how we're from here, remember? Right? What could be worse for a settler than not being able to settle? I said at the beginning of my talk today, you could be home watching Home and Away right now, and it's true, but if I've done anything this evening, I hope I've helped to nudge 
the linearity and oppositionality of the pair of terms home and away. Being at home in this ocean, or at least to the part of it to which I'm connected, all is better understood as Baker prompts us through cycles of connection, mobility, destinations, departures, lives and deaths. It's about being simultaneously home and away, salt, fresh, salt, all the time. Kia ora. In some ways, uh, David, uh, David and Alice represent the two axes that we're looking at in the conference and the workshop tomorrow because we're, we're trying to look at some north-south comparisons as we, as we look at Hey, uh, thank you, Ian, for introducing me. It's, it's great to see you all here. Uh, can you hear me, by the way? I've got that slightly disembodied feeling um, that comes with jet lag, and I think that is also applying to my hearing. There's a slight echo around me, but um, maybe it's just in my head. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here, a real privilege, um, uh, particularly um, uh, given that, as, as, um, as has been said already this, this afternoon, um, we are all here um, by the grace of, of the traditional owners, the original owners, and, and of course I also want to um, acknowledge and thank them too. Um, I personally am here by the grace and the hard work of, of Ian, of Killian, of Michelle and Eloise as well and uh, thanks to all of them for the hard work they've done to make this whole event possible. Um, what I'm going to do now is read uh, from the first chapter of the book uh, that, that Ian mentioned, Footprints. Um, Footprints is a story or a set of stories of my um, encounters with what I'm calling future fossils, the kind of the traces, uh, the marks, the landscapes, the objects that um, we are making or changing and that will be here in some form uh, for a very long time into the deep future. The, the, the things that will tell stories about us. Um, to uh, those who come long after us. Perhaps you might say, just to, to borrow from, from Alice's talk, the objects and the landscapes and the materials that are at the beginning of their cycle into a kind of eternity, a kind of infinity. So I'm going to read from the first chapter of, of Footprints. Um, this chapter begins with a, a visit I made to Western Sweden uh, in the company of Christine, who's here as well. I'm going to be talking uh, tomorrow, where we looked at some rock art and we visited... Um, a beach that is particularly kind of uh, acutely affected by, by marine plastic. Um, but what I want to read from is, is a slightly later part of the chapter when I talk about uh, going home to Edinburgh and taking a walk <coughs> along uh, the Firth of Forth and thinking about reflecting on how this particular landscape, a landscape that means a lot to me, is changing and, and how those changes will persist and what form they'll take. Uh, so the chapter is, is called The Constant Shore, and as I said, it begins on the edge of the North Sea. I have lived on the edge of the North Sea nearly all my life. I grew up in the northeast of England and spent many childhood holidays 
on the sea-rinsed beaches of Northumberland, tumbling down sand dunes that seemed as high as mountains, but felt as soft as duck down. It's where I feel most at home. Its lively weather and muted palate give me back a sense of myself. When, after a decade studying and working away from the coast, I moved to Edinburgh, around 120 miles north of where I grew up, it was as much the pull of the sea as anything else that drew me back. I'm neither a sailor nor much of a swimmer, and I can't claim any special insight into the sea or its moods. I just know that when I'm by it, something clicks into place. I think everyone has a place like this, or at least it's a gift I wish everyone would have. My remembered shore was a family affair. On a summer Saturday, we all, uncles, cousins, grandparents, dogs, would pile into cars and drive north. Each time we parked in the same spot, next to a particular path through the dunes, less a path perhaps than a kind of open tunnel, cool and shady. Passing through always brought the same rising excitement, the soft sand on my toes and the prickle of stiff grass on my legs as I ran and bursting out onto the wide beach, the same sense of arrival as the sound of the waves suddenly filled my ears. There was a lighthouse on the island directly opposite where we came through the dunes, always there as if in welcome. Always the same path, always the same scene to greet me at its end. The North Sea graced me with the image of somewhere unchanging. Even so, it was a false promise. The North Sea was born out of tremendous planetary disturbances. Before there was a sea here, when the water was locked up in immense cliffs of ice up to two, two kilometers thick, the sea floor was a low-lying plain of rolling grass. People lived here. Stone hand axes have been found in sediment dredged from the south and as far north as the east of the Shetland Islands. As the naturalist Adam Nicholson has said, in geological terms, Northern Europe is a landscape in recovery, still reeling from the immense trauma of deglaciation. But in the midst of this disturbance, life flourished. The North Sea's temperate climate was fostered, has fostered, a steady flowering of cultures and industries. And born out of change, the North Sea is changing still. Today it's one of the busiest shipping areas in the world. 400 metre long container ships pass in and out of the port cities of Rotterdam, Antwerp and Hamburg stitching together a tapestry of routes <coughs> across the oceans. Nearly 200 oil platforms and many more gas production installations perch in its waters like wading seabirds. Its coastline is an embroidery of refineries, power stations, and chemical plants. Forests of wind turbines have sprouted in its southern reaches, like ghostly trees in drowned forests. Plastic litter garlands its shores and lines the gullets of its fish and bird life. The Firth of Forth, where I live now, is a vibrant working landscape, fringed with industry and speckled with bird life. Maps or satellite pictures show the estuary shaped like a yawning mouth, toothed by curved headlands at North Berwick on the south coast and Ely on the north. Tankers process to and fro to and from the nearby refinery at Grangemouth, past islands bristling with the squat remnants of wartime gun platforms. One wintry day, 
I set out to walk along the beach near my house to see what traces I could find of how the North Sea is changing. As happens every time I walk or run down this hill and the island rises above the curve in the road, the beach seemed to arrive like a blessing. Occasionally planes roared overhead, aimed at the airport eight miles away, but it was otherwise a quiet morning. The sky was clear, just a few cottony cirrus clouds and a daytime moon. To the west, peering over a wooded ridge, I could see the tips of the bridges that spanned the fourth at South Queensbury. To the east, and the estuary exhaled towards the open sea. I turned inland and began to walk along the concrete promenade in the direction of the bridges and the island that sits low in the water like an upturned boat. In this direction, the coast leans into the land as if to make space for the sand flats deep belly. The tide had turned not long before I arrived and was ebbing away to reveal a pallet of glistening sand. By low tide, the flats fanning out like wing, wings from the mouth of a small river that feeds the estuary would extend all the way out to the island. When I reached the river, I sat down on the low wall and looked out towards the island. When the tide is out, you can walk across the sand flats, but the most direct way to reach it is by a mile-long causeway lined with concrete pylons erected during the Second World War as a barrier against enemy incursions on the shipyards further upriver. Chipped and worn by more than 60 years of tides, they look like a row of enormous whale's teeth. As the retreating tide stranded the island, it was as if an immense animal had come to rest here, between land and sea, its jaw thrust into the sand. The fourth has a long history of whale strandings. The very first account in English of a blue whale describing, described an animal that was stranded in the fourth published in 1694, and in 1819, a 72-foot fossil blue whale skeleton was found at Airthree in Stirlingshire. A stone tool had been discarded beside the corpse, evidence of what must have been an unimaginable bounty from the sea for the Neolithic peoples who stumbled upon it. In 2013, a minke whale beached itself here, and in 2016, a rare pod of 14 sperm whales was spotted. Still, I've never seen a whale. My own finds along this beach are typically more prosaic, crumpled aluminium drinks cans, rotting plastic bags, fragments of masonry, totally banal items washed clean of their histories and set down in an unfamiliar place. But there are stories attached to these neglected objects too, epics of travel across great distances of open water. Much of the North Sea's plastic enters the water around the main areas of population, such as England's southeast corner, or the major ports along the coasts of Germany and the Netherlands. But some of it arrives on the back of the broad, warm North Atlantic current that flows through subarctic waters south of Greenland and spills into the North Sea through the narrow gap between Fair Isle and Sumbra Head on Shetland's southern tip. On its way, the current picks up some of the plastic debris gathered in the great garbage patch accumulating in the North Atlantic gyre. <laughs> and if it meets the currents that flow through the Norwegian Trench, eventually decants it on beaches like this one. Objects whose raw material was formed hundreds of millions of years ago and drawn from oil wells in the Arabian Peninsula or Ecuador, manufactured in China and carried by Indonesian container ship for consumption in North America, now turn up on my doorstep in Scotland. 
These same waters were once busy with Arctic whalers searching for the animal's fabulous oil. This incredible material, fine, durable, ranging in hue from a lucent honey to a waxy brown, was the plastic of the 19th century. Oil from countless whales was poured into the manufacture of candles, soap, leather, and glycerin. It oiled the clocks and lit the drawing rooms of the industrial age. Whales' bones were used to make stays, hoops, umbrellas, and buttons. Even their excrement was highly prized. Ambergris, a secretion of the sperm whale's digestive tract, was used by perfumers and could fetch more per ounce than gold. Drained of their oil and stripped of all saleable parts, the flensed, headless corpses were usually tipped back into the water. Whalers had emptied the North Sea of its whales by around the 16th century, but whaling ships continued to sail around the world from port towns like Dundee, Whitby, and Hull. Over the course of the 19th century, when industrialized whaling really took hold, sperm whale numbers dropped by two-thirds by the end of the century, and up to 90% of blue whales were wiped out. In 1851, Herman Melville compared the pursuit of whales to the devastations wrought upon the buffalo in North America and wondered whether, like the buffalo, the whale could long endure so wide a chase and so remorseless a havoc. Still, the peak of whaling was another 100 years away from Melville. Philip Hoare notes that more whales were killed worldwide in 1951 alone than, it, than were taken in the preceding 150 years by New, New Bedford whalers. Around 2.9 million whales were killed in the 20th century. Until the mid-1980s, whale oil was an essential ingredient of the post-war economy, furnishing consumers with paints, detergents, and inks, crayons, and hydrogenated margarine ice cream, and vitamin supplements. It was used as automobile, automobile brake fluid and as lubrication for the aerospace industry and in the manufacture of items such as golf balls, tires, and camera film. It's likely that a proportion of the empty plastic bottles and tubes that wash up on beaches around the world once contained products that derived from whale oil. I picked myself up and began to walk back along the foreshore towards the open sea. The tide continued to ebb and the sky began to fill with grey. Oyster catchers nodded in the shallows and perched on a rock further out where the tide had yet to recede. A cormorant dried its wings, presenting the horizon with its peculiar startle shape. Cormorants always put me in mind of my own remembered shore because of their association with Cuthbert, one of the northeast of England's most important saints who lived as a hermit on the island of Innefarn 1,300 years ago in sight of my childhood beach with only seabirds for company. Monks on the nearby holy island of Lindisfarne remembered Cuthbert in the cruciform posture cormorants adopt to dry their wings and commemorated his life in the beautiful, sinuous illustrations of the Lindisfarne Gospels. Cormorants are also an important part of what is possibly my favorite poem. The modernist Basil Bunting was, to my mind, one of the great poets of the 20th century and of the North Sea. Bunting's life followed a series of conflicting currents, 
Born in a village outside Newcastle in 1900, he was imprisoned as a conscientious objector during World War I, but served as a military intelligence officer in Persia in World War II. In the mid-1960s, living back in diminished circumstances in the northeast of England, he began work on Brig Flats, his great verse memoir of lost time and lost love. The cormorant reminded me that the coast bunting arrives at in the poem's final mu movement on a wintry day not unlike this one is the same I loved, the same one I loved and visited so often as a child. The blue hump of Lindisfarne lies to the north and straight across from the beach of the Farne Islands where Cuthbert kept his hermitage. Today it's home to nearly 200 species of nesting seabirds. Bunting's beach is also loud with wildlife, especially cormorants, a bird which, because of the close association with Cuthbert, appears 559 times in the illustrations of the Lindisfarne Gospels. I can't think of a poem that means more to me than Brig Flats. I love its music and clarity, so indebted to the grace and generosity Bunting found in the art of the Lindisfarne Gospels, and the way that Bunting identified so closely with his world without imposing himself on it. The marks left by an individual life are in the end, he seems to say, only so much froth and sea spray. I've read the poem countless times, and I'd read it again not long before I came to the beach. But this time there was something new and unsettling in its plated lines. In the Lindisfarne Gospels, the elegant bird icons are densely entangled in brightly colored scroll work of red and green ribbons that bring to mind more recent images of birds ensnared by plastic waste, such as the livid orange propylene nets used by North Sea fishermen, or Chris Jordan's photographs of the desiccated bodies of lace and albatross with stomachs full of bottle tops, like a nest of bright eggs. Northern fulmars, a large colony of which breed on the Isle of May at the mouth of the Firth of Forth, are pelagic birds related to lace and albatross, who spend their lives foraging out to sea and return to shore only to breed. And because of their indiscriminate appetite, they are voracious consumers of plastic waste. Around 95% of northern fulmars now have plastic in their stom stomachs, and scientists use them as biomonitors to track the distribution and abundance of plastic pollution in the North Sea. The hoard of industrial and commercial plastics in the stomachs of these dead birds weave together a thick mesh of times and places. While the birds that have swallowed plastic, such as this, die and decompose, many of the objects they've ingested will re-enter the oceans where they may be eaten again and again by countless other seabirds. Plastic consumed by northern fulmar may initiate a cycle of ingestion, death and release that will endure through dozens of generations. North Sea seabird populations have been crashing for years its skies and cliffs have been getting quieter just as its waters have been emptied. But on the sea floor, discarded fishing gear dragged along by deep currents continues to swallow up fish in a phenomenon known as ghost fishing. It may do so for hundreds of years to come. Across the water, where the channel carved by the glaciers that formed the estuary is deepest, an oil, pla an oil platform rested at anchor, stately, like an enthroned monarch. The North Sea's reserves have so far yielded 43 billion barrels of oil, an incredible wealth of riches, reanimating the remains of phytoplankton 
that once floated in Mesozoic oceans. Harvesting the fruits of these ancient sea gardens is a monumental feat of engineering, operating in depths of up to 2,000 feet. Reserves are declining, however, and in 2016, Shell announced that it would begin decommissioning its four platforms in the Brent oil field, resolving to remove the topside structures, that is the living quarters and processing facilities, but leave the subsea infrastructure in place, including the 165 meter tall legs and 140 wells, each two kilometers deep, connected by over 100 kilometers of pipelines. The oil, the oil platform lolling across the estuary put me in mind of China Mayville's remarkable short story, Cove Heath, in which wrecked and sunken oil rigs come to life and rise from the ocean. In a grim parody of conservation efforts, they wade ashore on mangled legs to breed, hatching miniature riglets from impossible eggs pumped deep into the earth. Conservationists tag the young and release them into the ocean. Like Mayville's zombie rigs, at the end of their working lives, the Brent rigs can look forward to a lively future. The part of the legs that sit above the water, about 25 meters or so, will take between 150 to 300 years to disintegrate. The rest will break down more slowly over around another 500 years. At the base of each leg is a 60 meter tall concrete storage cell. There are 64 storage cells under the Brent's heaving waters, and two-thirds of them are filled with a pestilential soup of drilling waste, seawater, and attic oil. Protected from the waves, they could remain upright and sealed for more than a 1,000 years. At some point, however, inevitably, the storage cells will breach, and the fossil remnant of 200-million-year-old marine life will come surging back into the North Sea with a merciless, revenant certainty. In the meantime, the legacy of burning North Sea fossil fuels will be, will be measured by the rising waters. The higher the water gets, the stiller it becomes. If the waters rise high enough, the sandy bottom no longer swept by scouring currents that keep it clean and keep things moving will begin to settle under a layer of mud. Something similar happened around 300 million years ago when rising seas stripped the tidal energy from an ancestor of the North Sea and allowed a thick slab to cap the oil fields like a, a wax seal. A new layer of dense mud, if the seas rise high enough, would preserve the boreholes and pipelines under the Brent oil field for millennia, perhaps tens of millions of years. As I rounded the shallow bay and faced the open sea, I thought about the whales and the plastic beached on the North Sea's coastline, the ghostly nets eternally hunting across the sea floor, and the decommissioned rig infrastructure patiently waiting to release its toxic payload. What I had naively imagined for so long as a constant place is really, has always been caught up in significant changes. But the marks left by the changes we're making today will endure into the very deep future. The plastic could endure for many thousands of years, perhaps longer. For even longer, perhaps millions of years into the future, the boreholes and pipelines will be a form of hidden witness thrust kilometers deep into the sediment. My constant shore has been deeply scored. Ask the sea, councils bunting in brig flats. 
what's lost, what's left.